Well, hello and welcome to our Called Connected Committed podcast. And I am absolutely delighted that today we have the amazing Jeffrey Boacci with us, the author of the book, I Heard What You Said. Um, and Lorraine Prince is co-hosting with me today. How are you, Lorraine? I am fangirling, but ready. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, welcome. <laughs> no, really good to be here. Thank you. I'm fanboying just to even the sequel. I'll just say that. So stop the chat. I love it. It's great. Started well already. Um, I'm going to launch right in, if that's all right, Jeffrey. We've been reading your book as a team. We've been having a book club. Uh, we've really been kind of getting into it and having some really great chats about it. And I'm going to start off by saying um, one of the things that we do, so Lorraine and I, lead uh, within our team the work we do on racial justice and when we go and talk about racial justice to different groups of people almost we can almost predict the first question is going to be but what about dot 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 and wow. so when you talked about what aboutery it really really kind of stood out to me um, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about why do you think people are so quick to kind of jump in with the but what about yeah yeah it's actually quite simple um it comes down to fear and insecurity, right? I mean, one of the things that we don't talk about a lot or enough is how insecure we are made by the world around us and by the structures and societal ideas and concepts that we're born into, all right? So what happens is the world is constructed in a way that feels stable. And because you're born into it, you assume that everything in the world as is, is part of normality. So the minute you start to shake that, it scares people. It's actually quite terrifying. It's like waking up and the sky was on fire. You know, that's the feeling people have. So when you start pushing people to look into corners of society that they've not looked at before and think about perspectives that have been marginalized, what happens is people get defensive because you're actually asking them to turn gravity off, you know, and no one wants to be floating around, even though it will be quite fun. So the water battery thing is almost like a reflex to say, yeah, but hang on a second, the way things are, are fine, because what about those people? So what you're saying is trying to get that seesaw of power back to the status quo, which isn't even flat. The seesaw is never flat. So it's completely logical why people react to, you know, a position of this is wrong in this very specific way with, yeah, but what about other things that are wrong in ways that we've already understood because it's come from insecurity and fear, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it totally does. We talk about, um, and I've totally stolen this from someone else, um, someone called Professor Paul Miller, but he talks yeah. all the time. Oh, amazing. Amazing yeah. guy, right? We love yeah. working with him. And he talks about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's the yeah. only way into this work. Listen, and yeah, th th that's oftentimes, like, I've done a lot of speaking in schools, organizations, and one of the things I do is I just labor this metaphor. I just labor it phrases about gravity. I've already talked about it once and how that all these things like racism, gender, class, nationhood, they act like gravity on us to the point where it's so constant and so strong and pervasive, we think it's normal. But that is very comfortable because it's almost like a straitjacket that is, that is padded and you've been in it for so long, you don't know how to be free. So the gravity of the situation is creating comfort in really, really unusually uncomfortable circumstances. And understanding that and owning the discomfort is the only way you can see it for what it is. 
giving you enough distance to kind of like shake free. Oh, sorry, I've got on my high horse already, you know. No, we're loving it. We're loving it. Come on, this is what we're here for. That's why we're all here, Jeffrey. (laughs) This is what we want to hear. You can't be a hip hop head and and not, you know. get on yeah. a high horse because it's ego driven really hip-hop yeah i know i know it's yeah, too much hip-hop i'm always trying to drop knowledge I've, I've it's been okay fun. well we're gonna feed into that so so knowledge yourself is something that runs straight through hip-hop especially mm-hmm. like you know the old new york hip-hop like wu-tang and all of that stuff so you know if you say that education is an arid desert and hip-hop is a tsunami yeah how do we advocate for the pupils who are like three million pupils from UK ME how do we advocate for hip-hop to come in to our schools and to help them with their cultural identity fantastic it's really simple first of all hip-hop is like beyond middle age now hip-hop is a 40 year old parent who shouldn't be wearing trendy clothes and should be sitting down at home with a mortgage that's what hip-hop should be doing but it's not because hip-hop is like Peter Pan it keeps on reiterating itself in new forms, right? So there's something built into the very genetics of hip hop as a culture that means that it's regenerative. Every generation, something new comes out of it. And that is actually very, very, that's a very inherent part of human development. Like we have to be regenerative, we have to evolve. You know, if we don't evolve and discover new things and challenge existing preconceptions, then we become stagnant. You know, science as a concept only really started popping off when scientists across the globe, not just the white Western ones, realized they didn't know anything. And that curiosity is what led them to discover things. Hip hop is a lot like that. So in order for like that to be leveraged within our young people, within our education system, you have to kind of look at what is it about hip hop culture that enables it to thrive often outside of the margins because this is created by black and brown people in New York in the 1970s, economic deprivation was at the core of it, social protest, you know, and creativity with, with, with a lack of material wealth. So it's the human spirit like manifested into this cultural behemoth that has become obviously commodified and it's become a big capitalist force. But at its core, if you wanna get into hip hop, you have to dig deep within yourself and drag some skills out of somewhere and join a community. You know, there's no way of faking it. You can't fake hip hop. Like you can't fake rapping or MCing or DJing or you have to just learn it. So these are fundamental human skills. And there's a reason why I've like lent into hip hop because there's a part of hip hop community that I feel is so empowering when you meet other people in competitive collaboration, creative and cultural expression, respect for culture. And that's, I think, how humans grow at their best. Education could learn a few lessons from that. You know, it could learn from looking at who is marginalized and why, from looking back at the ancestors and what we can learn from them, from being creative and collaborative. Think about how uncollaborative education is. Every year, 600,000 teenagers sit in silence, I don't know how they manage it, without a prefrontal cortex to tell them to like, think about the future and they do exams, which is so individualistic. You get your piece of paper that you cash in for your financial security. That's crazy. We should be like drama troops doing things in ensemble. Like we should be working together as a community, growing. The best things grow in community and education leans the other way. So of course people are insecure and not knowing their own skills because 
they've not been invited to explore their passions all these things that hip-hop has done for black people in america absolutely but now all over the world you know so i, I so yeah. I'm like i'm gonna freestyle a little bit now you're gonna spit so some bars if- Nah, 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 nah. I'm talking about the question, the question. I was ready. I'm always ready. No, 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 no. no, no. (laughs) Okay, so if you had to pick an album to use in your English class, what album would you pick and why? Um, From hip hop or from like any genre or like? Let's go with hip hop. All right. Hip hop, hip hop. Uh, Nas, Illmatic, obviously. Um because it's just a combination of like social commentary, someone finding their voice in the world, someone who is at odds with the world, but a young voice, like young Nas was, was, was like a child looking out at the world. He wasn't really in it in that way. Um, and that's a really special position that a lot of us find ourselves in. Uh, the Miseducation of Lauren Hill by Lauren Hill. Um, obviously she's an, she's an incredible mind and thinker but there's all this stuff with just about relationship and love and com- and being in, in competition with the world. Um, I, I would say early Queen Latifah, um, some tracks there with like people like Moni Love, because, you know, b- before hip hop got gripped by toxic masculinity, which has gripped everything in the world and wrecked it, there was something about female empowerment and looking at that world that we can still learn a lot from. And we look, we look at what Queen Latifah was doing, the Afrocentricity, the, you know, the anti-sexism that was in, in her, that was a special moment. So yeah, there's, there's a few examples there, but there's loads, there's loads, there's loads. Well, you just dropped some jewels right there. So hopefully people pick them up and go yeah, and run and get those yeah, albums. Exactly. I hope so. <laughs> Which is, kind of leads me on to our next question which is around cultural capital right so what you've basically just been describing is a form of cultural capital but we've got this really narrow basically defined by people who look like me um (laughs) kind of idea of what cultural capital is and I love what you were saying about you know unpicking that quote that kind of Matthew Arnold quote about the best of what is thought and said and it's like well who gets to decide you know what is the best of what is thought and said and um and and also kind of picking up on your point about gravity earlier it made me think of um Uh, Paolo Friere's work in the pedagogy of the oppressed and all about critical consciousness and the awakening of critical consciousness that people get to see this is the status quo that we're in and this is how it is actually your you know your place within it you're actually being oppressed within it but unless we open your eyes to the reality of the world that you live in you know and so how far are those things kind of interrelated in terms of you know the the curriculum that we have how how you know, what needs to happen that that's more empowering, more liberating. So actually kind of people are set free from that, that sense of oppression. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, you know, just exploring and exposing as many different narratives as possible. Even the word different is problematic because what does that mean? Different to what? There's no such thing as different. If it's censored, it is. Yeah. And it's different to something else. It's just its own center. So as many narratives as possible, need to be exposed and explored within the school curriculum. Cause you've got a finite number of years where your job is basically to wake up and explore curiosity and explore human culture. That's what you do when you're being educated. It's an amazing time. It's why schools are like fantastic places or they could be. So once you do that, then you can start to decenter some of the dominant narratives that have been dominant by design for many hundreds of years, you know, masculinity, the patriarchy, heteronormativity, 
you know, white supremacy, um, all the rest of it, Eurocentricity, these dominant straightness, all these dominant identities that um, are too insecure and too kind of like, uh, yeah, kind of malevolent to undo themselves. So school needs to be a place of that, but how do you do that? One of the things which I think is incredibly liberating is realizing that the identities that have been thrust upon you by society at large, that you make yourself up of, that you make yourself up out of, they are not essentially you. So you're not wedded to these constructs and you owe them nothing. The example I always give is masculinity, right? I am like male, he, him, and my pronouns, blah, blah. But it's got me by the throat, masculinity as a set of rules, a set of constructs, a set of privileges. I need to be able to criticize and attack masculinity safe in the knowledge that I'm not attacking myself because I'm not attacking myself. So I can criticize masculinity. I don't like it. I don't want it. And I can see its problems moreover because I've had 40 years to work it out. Right. So I don't let anyone off the hook here because no one's that old because no one's the, like the age of the planet. But after a certain number of years, you've had enough time to see what's going on. And I can see that masculinity causes problems. I can see it every day. Yeah, so it's just that. So I need to know that I can challenge, criticize, attack the concept of masculinity without undoing myself. Because once you realize that, then it allows you to go forward with your core values at heart rather than the identity constructs that have been placed around you. And the same goes for any dominant construct of identity. So people who are racialized as white, this is where it gets sticky because no one wants to be a bad person. So people who are white need to understand that they can challenge whiteness mm -hmm. without undoing themselves. Mm -hmm. I can challenge whiteness purely, I'm allowed to get away with it because of the color of my skin, right? Despite the fact that I've got whiteness in me as well, which spins people, but I was born in 1982 in the United Kingdom. So of yeah. course I've got whiteness in me. There are yeah. black people who are, who are anti-black racist. What I'm saying is, it's people assume that black people are going to be anti-racist without accepting that there's work that's been done to lead us to this point and that you can be anti-racist too because you owe white supremacy nothing and it's not you whiteness is a concept owes you nothing yeah just a constraint on your identity once you realize that then we can undo this stuff that's been around for 450 years probably in a matter of minutes but right. people are insecure because it's been bred into us. That's a big answer to a question there. <laughs> it's a great answer to a question. It was a big question, to be fair. So, yeah. but um, yeah, that's amazing. Um, we've got um, our amazing colleague, um, Holder, with us today. Holder, are you going to jump in with your question? I know you're dying to ask Jeffrey a question. Um, I did have a really quick question, Jeffrey, if that's all right. Um, so I've, I've been reading the book and it's in incredible. And I've spoken to Lorraine. We had like a little, a little reflection about it after. And my question is, Jeffrey, what do you hope that white people reading the book get out of it versus what you hope black people reading the book get out of it? Oh, a nice, easy question then. <laughs> um, I'll give you the, the, straight, the straight answer. First of all, um, I want people, you know, racialized as black, people who are in an ethnic minority. Um, I want them to feel seen, to feel heard, to feel that their experiences, like the, 
daily microaggressions, the the unspoken traumas of just existing in dominant white society, that that's been recognized at a level, that's very important. So my anecdotes is my way of like sharing and my way of offering solace to people that have had something similar. For white people, people racialized as white who haven't realized some of this stuff, um, I want them to be shaken out of slumber. I want the blinkers to be peeled away to see a bit more in a bit more detail what it's like to live from a marginalized perspective in dominant white society. And then beyond that, I want everyone to see that there's an idiosyncrasy to each of us that is core to who we are. And actually we get better by exploring those idiosyncrasies with everyone else. Blackness is not one thing, like we're not a monolith. And my journey is very much my journey. It's got particular turns and particular nuances that I've been through. And your journey is gonna be your journey. And actually the thing to do is to listen to each other. So I don't shy away from pouring myself into my work because I could have become an academic. Like I know what I'm like. I could have become a doctor and just like done academic work in this sphere. But I want people to know it's me. This is like Jeffrey's life and my biography and my experiences because I think that's where the connections happen so yeah I've kind of given you three answers to one question there but one of them will stick I mean that's great because it it let it leads itself into the question that I'm going to ask you so I know growing up I've always known that I was going to be a teacher always like uh, in my culture teaching is held to high esteem when did you look in the mirror and say ha teacher that's my identity yeah um I always I knew from quite young that I wanted to work with children even when I was more or less a child it's a bit mad so I would do like play schemes and things like that you know when you're a teenager and you do like a little play scheme and during the summer holidays you like run workshops and be an entertainer sort of thing and I always loved that and so I knew that when I got into the real adult world that at some point I'd want to work with kids um, and I also loved English, which meant that I wanted to do something academic. So it was a bit of a like one plus one equals two situation. Um, but I didn't go into teaching straight away. Like I, I needed to make money. And I thought, yeah, teaching doesn't pay enough money. So I did other stuff after university. I did like some journalism, like industry news journalism, like selling trade stuff um, to make some money. And then I thought, no, this is boring. So teaching was partly the, you know, years of wanting to work with young people. Partly it was just, I knew I'd have to bring my whole self to teaching. Like I'm energized by people. And I knew that a school would be a place where there was lots of that kind of energy, even though it's a massive headache. So that was good for my, the way I construct myself. Um, so that's probably when I thought, yeah, teaching's for me. When I realized that I was bored of doing other stuff, you know? I mean, that's great. I mean, you said you had to bring your whole self and I think, that that's kind of a, a, a place where we are right now, where we know that there's a teacher shortage mm -hmm. and we know that generally uh, people from UKME populations don't really go into teaching, A, because it may not pay a lot of money, but having to bring your whole self into an environment that could be toxic yeah. is really debilitating. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to make sure that A, we have a place where everybody can show their full self 
but welcome people from UKME backgrounds into those environments? Yeah, um, it's really hard because I entered education knowing that I was going to do all the work. I'm very used to exploring my own vulnerability, right? Because I've got a stutter, which I don't know if I talked about this at the launch. I can't remember you were there, but I can't remember if I talked about it. Did I? Yeah, yeah. So essentially what that means is I'm not fluent. And as a kid, talking was difficult and it, I knew that I couldn't do it, which meant that life was always going to be hard. But it also meant that I sort of had to work out some strategy to get through it because you have to talk to people. And now I do radio and teach and do trends. Like I'm talking to you now. You know, 12 year old me is looking at this situation like, what are you doing? What are you talking? So that is a very vulnerable thing because basically I'm risking, you know, humiliating myself every time I speak. So I had to work out how to live with a stutter. And that is one of the things that helped me flourish because, you know, your weakest thing is your superpower is your weakest thing. Like that sounds cheesy, but it's it's 100% true. So I had to learn that. I could be fluent when A, I was very passionate. So I had to bring myself to every moment. I turn up to situations like you can't get away from me. I'm, I'm a headache. And that is what you need in a school. It's what you need in life, I think. Just, you know, go at it with passion. That kind of overrides the stutter. I'm too busy being passionate. And I also learned that doing things in groups helped me as well. So being connected to other people meant that I was more involved in what's happening around me than in my own head but it also meant that I learned about the artificiality of like your thoughts and your feelings versus the words that come out of your mouth so I don't trust words when people speak it's just the words the thoughts and the feelings are different sometimes and I know that because when you've got a stutter you can't get the thoughts and feelings out right so that all got me into like writing basically and performing identity so school you know, not to psychoanalyze myself too much, but it's a natural place where you connect with people, where you have to lead with some kind of passion, even if it's just, I like physics rather than I like geography, that's a passion. And you have to, you have to kind of perform some kind of identity as a teacher. It usually comes with cosplay, like wearing the outfit of a teacher. Like I always had like way, way too many kind of teacher uniforms of my own devising with like a satchel and loafers and you know all this kind of stuff but the serious point is that that was a space that I had to make safe for myself um and own my own vulnerability and then other people would join me so it's maybe an unsatisfying answer to your question that the work that needed to be done what would have helped me out is other people being sensitive to my experiences without me having to do anything. And that's what didn't happen in 15 years of education, really. I never really had any conversations surrounding race and being a teacher. So no one outside of me was making that safe for me or spending energy on that. And that's why, and I heard what you said, I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, how can we make these spaces safe for people who might feel unsafe? I've got no idea how many things I just said to you there, but... No, because you tapped into that in the book with wearing your outfit to school, mm -hmm. right? Because that was your armor. And I mean, we've had discussions about it from my point of view. When I read that, it was like the black church. You cannot show up to church 
in your street clothes. Let's just put it that way. You have to, you have to show up. So Mm -hmm. that's like your reverence to God, right? So I feel like coming into those spaces is also, again, like you said, showing your reverence, showing my royalty, showing who I am, really, this is a part of me also. And that could be looked at as my armor, but it could also be looking like, this is who I am. I'm showing up in these spaces with my reverence. Exactly. And then you become the persona slightly as as well. You know, I was the, I was the best dressed. I am the best dressed teacher that I've ever seen. Like now I'm not, I'm just in a t-shirt now. You know, I look pretty standard and scruffy, but when I was in school, seriously, I would spend a lot of time and effort on that. And that's also an insecurity because, you know, black bodies in mainstream white spaces, you know, goodness, you don't want to turn up looking scruffy because people are already having their preconceptions and their stereotypes about who you are and what you want. So if you feed that stereotype by turning up looking, you know, anything less than excellent, black excellence is like an anvil and we still have to fly. It's, it's pretty deep. Um, and I know that. And sometimes I worry that I might be creating a bit of a situation where people have been normalized into seeing black accidents, you know? You had Barack Obama, then you had Donald Trump. <laughs> like, you serious? Most famous black people are like saintly, like Nelson Mandela, these people, you know, like just, and they're like revered for being so excellent, so pure. If Barack Obama did 1% of the things that Donald Trump had done, he probably would have been arrested. You know? I mean, I, I agree with you. We've had that, we've had conversations mm. about just being able to see the humanity in people and humanity is not perfect right so right. You, you need to be able like you know people revere Martin Luther King Jr and not Malcolm X but they right. were coming at the same thing same right? thing exactly they and, were and the same problem same problem and Malcolm X was very true to himself mm-hmm. and said look I'm not perfect this is this is what I stand for exactly. so I understand the space of being able to turn up as your authentic self, and that is not perfection, right? So I think, you know, holding spaces, uh, safe spaces for you to be able to show up regardless, that's what we need to be creating. And that that will be real progress when a C minus black professional can prosper in the world without criticism, without attack, without having to turn up dressed dressed to the nines. That's real progress. When we get a C minus black president, he or she, or they, then we know we're making it somewhere. Because at the moment, twice as hard to go half, you know, to go half as far, that cliche still rings true. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so something to aim for. Yeah, and that really, um, I mean, it struck me all the way through the book. So as someone who racializes as white to kind of, it really kind of, came out through the book the kind of that weight you talked about an anvil you know the weight of responsibility of like I'm representing as a black male in the predominantly white education system I'm kind of representing you know a whole demographic here you know as someone in the white you know white female majority of most teachers did you say something like 70 percent are kind of white female yeah so I so I'm, I'm technically a white female I would like to say, statistically, I'm a white woman. 
Yes, yeah, right. And no one's ever going to look at me, you know, if I do something, no one's going to ever look at me and go, oh, well, all white female teachers are like that. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I get to be like you saying, I get to be average. And um, if it's all right, I'm going to just read a little quote from okay. from the book. But um, this really stood out to me and something I kind of was really wanting to impress upon our team. And anyone who's listening to this podcast, I'd like them to pay attention to this. But, you know, it's like where you say it's not my job to shift the perspective of dominant whiteness. It's the job of every individual to shift their own perspective and encourage those around them to do the same. And it's like everyone has got to take responsibility for this. They can't, you know, look to you and go, oh, it's fine. Jeffrey Bocci is going to change everyone's perspective. It's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? And I just think that really kind of came out to me that actually we've all got to step up and we've all got to take responsibility for this. Yeah. and. I'm I'm so naive. I only realized recently that some people don't spend their life thinking about this stuff. Some people wake up and like eat toast and then go to bed and then wake up again. It's like that, I'm like I'm I'm constantly thinking and analyzing and turning it into work and so on. And that's just become my normal. So my normal has been vibrating at quite a high frequency. A lot of marginalized people, their normal just to look like they're standing still they are hovering off the ground day in, day out. And it is work and it needs to be applauded and recognized. People don't even know how much work it is because these stories aren't even shared, you know? So I feel like where we are in the dystopia of like racism that we're currently living in, people racialized as black are going through it day in, day out. And it's not, it's not just people like me that create a platform for themselves by like, writing too many books or whatever but just everyday people out there just trying to live their life are probably swimming with ang- with weights on their ankles just to get by that is tough um and that's partly what I've talked about here because in in I heard what you said yeah it's about teaching but it's actually about black professionalism in a white paradigm which is broad it's a broad conversation there yeah yeah I, th- um, I think I think that's that's like a, a safeguarding issue, and I think we talk about that all the time. You know, tra- trauma is mm. safeguarding, yep. right? So, yep. if we're talking about a generational trauma, b trauma that's just been inflicted over the last two years, yeah, what can schools do on a practical level to address the issue of racism as safeguarding? Yeah, I think. The first thing you have to do is accept the reality of it and explore that reality because that's not happening. So people have got such a paucity of understanding as to what racism is. A lot of people still think that racism is essentially racial discrimination or interpersonal racist abuse, even verbal or physical. They think that's what racism is. So if someone shouts the N-word or someone beats someone up, they don't understand that racism is just in the water of society. So that means you have to do an audit of your institution for how it shows up. You have to like know how racism shows up in every single avenue of your institution, the curriculum, staffing, you know? I go up and down the country and I'm oftentimes, it is a trauma. I'll come off like a train journey and I'm walking around like somewhere that's quite multicultural, like the middle of London. And every black person I've seen has been doing what I would call a menial job, you know, is either a cleaner, or a security person or a delivery driver, you know, um, and I'm not criticizing those jobs. So no one at me with how dare you, but whatever, those are not 
the jobs that explore the full potential of human um, potential, you know, and yet the majority of black faces I see are doing those jobs. So that's structural racism right in your face and people don't even realize it. So if you do an audit of the world around you, you'll see how racism is showing up in all sorts of ways, whose faces are around which tables, who gets to decide what and so on. Once you do an audit and you see it, then you've done the biggest job, which is seeing things for what they really are. Because until you do that, you could just bat it away. It doesn't matter because nothing is urgent until it's important and nothing is important until it's urgent. This is a weird thing there. So racism persists for hundreds of years because yeah, it's important, but people don't think it's urgent because they think the world is okay. So what are you talking about? The world is not okay. Sexism is just rampant and misogyny is rampant in society. It's not okay. Like we need to be out on the streets, but the world ticks over. So you need to make that effort your first, your first port of call. Just do the audit, man. Work out what's going on, what's wrong. And then beyond that, think about are there spaces within the organization for these voices to be centered? Because you can't expect everyone to bring themselves into the conversation because it's you might get annihilated. I didn't talk about race until my 30s. I had to, because I wrote a book about it. I wrote a book called Hold Tight. I mentioned it and I heard what you said. I wrote a book and then my colleagues read it and then they knew I had these thoughts in my head. So the cat was out of the bag at that point. But the reason why I didn't talk about race up until that point was because, you know, you don't want to be the person that puts your head above the parapet and says the thing that might make someone defensive and then you find yourself annihilated. And who cares if you're gone because you're one of one of one. So you're a drop of ink in the ocean anyway, so you can get washed away. So those thoughts are in my head the whole time. So some people hide, you know, I've been in organizations where there are gay people that have not told their colleagues they're gay in the 21st century because they don't want to get annihilated. So it's survival. So I feel like making it safe for people to bring their whole selves to the situation is important. And just like, yeah, just like doing the audit with fidelity. Like what is actually going on here? Let's look at everything, 360 with fresh eyes. It's so helpful. And I just really hope that everybody who's listening to this really takes that understanding this is root and branch this is not like you're saying it's not just a one-off incident this is going back and look at your entire culture and really pulling it apart and saying you know is everybody able to feel like they can belong and that they can actively participate in this culture absolutely and I feel like something very practical that you can do there which is empowering as well because it can feel like doom and gloom all of my books, I heard what you said, should really technically be unreadable because it's just so depressing. But I find joy in life and I find joy in people and I'm going to be joyful. Like, I don't really care how depressing the world is. I will find joy because that is what we are as people, right? So one of the ways you can like find joy is to work out who and what needs to be celebrated. Every single community has got something about it that can be set, not, not commodified, not appropriated, you know, I'm not talking about that, that's crude. I'm talking about genuinely celebrated. And if you do that, then the doors start to creak open because it's an inviting thing to do. You know, if you have a Muslim population in your school, is Islam celebrated at all within your school? That's a question that I've had to wrestle with at schools I've worked in. And then beyond that, 
there's histories of oppression and resistance with heroes and heroines that need to be celebrated. And do you know what those histories are? Mm. Black diaspora, there are many examples. We talked about a few, you know, your Martin Luther Kings, your Malcolm X's, your brothers Parks, and all, all of that lot in America, your Steve Biko's and so on and so forth. Every community will have heroes and heroines that need to be celebrated. And then the final things what I've already said, which is looking for and accepting the history of trauma and understanding that trauma and accepting it. Because until you accept that, then your empathy level is going to be too low. Because some people think, ah, well, women don't have it that bad, really. So they'll never tackle sexism because they just don't accept that there's trauma involved in the patriarchy. Same with racism. Ah, it's not that bad. So they'll never accept the, the trauma. So you have to accept the trauma, look at the heroes of resistance and celebrate. You know? Sorry, I'm giving you long answers. Short oh, no, brilliant answers. And I'm just gonna, before Holder jumps in and asks her question, I'm just gonna say if any school doesn't have a copy of David Olashoga's Black and British, then they need to go out and buy one now because there That's is no pretty. excuse to not have, uh, you know, figures all the way through history that you can celebrate. Um, there's no excuse there's all the resources are there so let's Absolutely. let's get celebrating holder jump in have more questions um what what was the which was the what was the most difficult chapter to write and why and then i have another question after that yeah um one of the most difficult ones was probably um weirdly your posh something I get called a lot because mm -hmm. it opens this massive can of worms about class and race and the slippery divisions between there and a lot of people also would happily sideline racism because they think that classism is the real monster despite the fact that these things go hand in hand you know you can't talk about identity politics without talking about socioeconomics and there's a reason why you never hear the term black working class because most black immigrant communities are working class by default. So you don't have to say it. But that was a difficult one to write because, you know, you start to get into these areas of power linked to, you know, financial security, things of that nature. Um, and it feels like you're in a bit of a tightrope there as to where do we put our attentions? Um, but ultimately, most of us are not financially powerful anyway. Um, that's the spoiler alert, really. Most of us are at the mercy of people who do have financial power. And we're getting to a point now in society where that's where the gulf is wider than it ever was before. There are 677, I think, don't quote me on that, billionaires in the UK alone. Like That's mad when you think about it. And they don't get taxed like you and me do. So, so you know, there's that, yeah. So that was quite a tricky one to write, I think. Um, yeah, that one there. What's your follow-up question? My question was gonna be, what made you decide to write and publish this book now? Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like I was always gonna write about education at some point. 15 years teaching, it's like, it's long, but it's not long compared to other professions where they do it forever. 15 years is nothing like an architect will be an architect until the day they die probably you know same with like a lawyer or a surgeon whatever so but in in the context of what education is now 15 years is quite a stint most teachers leave within five years 
So I've done something remarkable here, give myself a pat on the back. And I felt like I realized partly around, you know, the whole 2020 thing, Black Lives Matter uptick, a lot of white people realizing that racism was a thing for the first time, you know, they were surprised. I was like, wow, racism is a thing. Like, yeah, always has been. Um, it was a point of reflection when I could look back and take a deep breath over what have I been doing for 15 years? And I realized that I'd been on an anti-racist journey. That realization was huge for me because again, just because I'm black, it doesn't mean that I'm naturally anti-racist and that I'm a qualified like race expert. Are you mad? Like I've had to read books. I've had to talk to people. I've had to attend courses. I've had to explore another curriculum in life, which I've been doing since childhood that is out of the mainstream. That's work. So I realized that in my 15 years of teaching, I'd gone on a transition. I'd worked things out towards understanding myself as an anti-racist educator. And I felt like that story needed to be unpacked. So it was the right time to lay out my journey. We, we are so grateful for this conversation. And I got one more question for you. Um, so you ended the book with hope. And you yeah. know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, this is not my line. I stole it from a movie, but hope allows you to float. So what's your hope for the education system? And more importantly, what are you, what's your hope for the pupils within the education system? Oh man, um, my main hope for education is that it starts to really see um, different communities and individuals that it manages to create an edifice whereby the individual can be really seen um, more than just part of the cogs of education and part of the cogs of wider society whereby you essentially go to school in order to learn how to make money when you're older. If education can start to really value the complexity of individuals and invite individuals to flourish, then schools will become a utopia. They almost are. It's almost perfection. But then things like formal assessment, certain qualifications as a currency, it wrecks it. And then when you fold into that historical blind spots and insecurities that aren't challenged, then it becomes actively damaging. So if schools can kind of see that the most valuable thing they have are individual people who are growing together in communities, that changes the whole game. Um, and for people within school, I just hope that what I've got out of life and education is what other people get, which is an understanding of your own values, an understanding of your own vulnerabilities and superpowers and your own skill sets and your own leanings. Because if that was the main aim of school, oh my goodness, can you imagine it? From four years old, we're just trying to work out what makes you tick? What is great about you? What do you struggle with? And how are you going to get through that? If people could come out of school with that age 16 or 18 and go into the world of their values, game over. Everyone's designing a better world, you know, which is what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to design a better world for my little corner. I write books and I do stuff. I talk to you. Everyone is doing that or could be doing that. Um, so that's, that's what I'd love to see happen. Um, and then also just truth, just giving kids the truth of what has happened without insecurity. It's not scary when you realize that you don't owe history anything. 
just tell people what happened. Just tell them what happened. Like, that's it. I tell my kids what happened. I talk to them about things that people think, no, you can't tell them about Stephen Lawrence. It's horrible. You got stabbed. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll tell my seven-year-old what happened. It's fine. I've written a book about it called Musical Truth. It's got truth in the title. I have to tell the truth. And then you can transcend the things that are trying to pin you down. So there you go. That's my convoluted answer to your straightforward question. <laughs> That's amazing. Jeffrey, thank you so much. We loved every minute of this conversation. Um, in uh, the Church of England, we talk about we have a vision for education, which is life in all its fullness. And I love your description of that in, in terms of everyone just growing into their authenticity, growing into their truth, recognising their superpowers. I love that. It's such a great description of what we mean by life in all its fullness. Um, and it's just wonderful to end on that note. Um, thank you for all the truth that you brought us in this conversation all the challenges we I really hope everybody who listens to this will take this really seriously and really think about what they can do in their own context to make a difference go and buy the book I heard what you said it's a absolutely cracking read um, oh, brilliant and thank you Lorraine for co-hosting with me and our wonderful colleague Holder thanks for being with us today and we look forward to seeing you next time on the Call Connected Committed podcast